So I am here today with my dear friend Marianne Waldrip, retired Marine Colonel. We have been friends. How long have we been friends? Since 2000. I met you when you were a captain, right? Yep. And we. 95 or 97. Yes, that's right. And we started to become really good friends when you were a major in the Marine Corps. We both met at Camp Pendleton and we had a little group of friends. Um, there were six of us. We call ourselves the sisters. Now there's five of us. I'm the baby, and then it's Marianne, and then how old's Jackie? Jackie's 70? Uh, yeah, at least 75, I yeah. think, because Bob is 80-ish over. Yeah. But you've got uh, you got Margaret. Yeah, Margaret's. Margaret. Oh, yeah, Margaret, and then Kathy and Jackie. So a wide range of ages. Marianne is at the young age of 54, and she recent she retired from the Marine Corps in 2011, she received her Ph.D. in leadership studies um, in 2016, focusing on successful women in man male-dominated organizations. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So I just wanted to give our listeners a little um, image of who you are and how we met. And I wanted to talk to you today because you have such an interesting life and a career, you know, you were, you retired as a Marine Colonel for God's sake. Uh, you know, you shared that title or that rank with your father. He retired as a Marine Colonel as well. And then you went on to get your PhD and, you know, we've talked a little bit offline about life choices and regrets and, you know, that's what we want to talk about today and kind of the tra trajectory of life. You know, is it linear? You do A, B, C, D in this, you know, ordered fashion or is it meandering? You know, I just just want to hear what's in your brain and talk about that stuff. So tell us a little bit about your career as a Marine and your, you know, what you found and your studies as a PhD student and just what life has taught you. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Kathleen. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> Good. And uh, as you know, I do like talking. Um, <laughs> you yes. So I'm really proud of the my life's journey because it actually, um, I believe it honors my dad. So I knew at the age of 10 in 1975, uh, my, when my dad retired from the Marine Corps, I had had just about... Uh, enough time to find the fantasy in his Marine Corps career and probably not the reality. I'm the fourth of four children. So my three older siblings, sister and two brothers, did not choose to take the military path. And so that's why I say I think I saw the fantasy and the glamour in my dad's career and not really the reality like my brother, brothers and sisters did. So I knew at the age of 10 that I wanted to be just like my dad. He was gracefully powerful, and he showed me a great side of the Marine Corps. My mom was his biggest fan. My mom was the Marine Corps' biggest fan. Um, I'm from Quantico, Virginia. I was born in Quantico, Virginia. That is known to be the crossroads of the Marine Corps. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, now in hindsight, and I usually call it when you do the autopsy of your life, <laughs> you actually see um, that I've identified as a Marine all my life. Right. I mean, he's going to tell me that I don't belong in the Marine Corps, my 24 years in the Marine Corps. You know, I didn't know this when I was traveling that journey. But in hindsight, who's going to tell me I don't belong? I was born in Quantico, Virginia. 
I mean, that's usually just a place that people go for training. Right. I mean, I'm from there. So, so anyway, I joined the Marine Corps just uh, as my dad said, uh, I think you should join the Navy. The Navy has better opportunities for their women. Sure. In 1983, that was true. Um, and I told dad that as I was going through ROTC, the, the Marine Corps actually was opening up greater opportunities for women. And I wanted to be an intelligence officer. And he said, really, all I care about is that you have a marketable job when you decide that you're going to leave the Marine Corps. Sure. Because he was an infantry officer. He served in Korea and Vietnam. And when he retired at the age of 50, he wasn't very marketable as an infantry officer from the wars. Um, that's not what IBM was looking for. And those are the kinds of jobs that he was applying for, was leadership jobs at IBM in Atlanta, Georgia, when we retired out of um, Paris Island, South Carolina. And so um, I knew that I would be marketable with an intel, an intelligence job. Absolutely. You know, for those of you that don't know intelligence, that's a spy. And my particular job was communications intelligence, which is what the National Security Agency does. And we hear a lot about the NSA now. Um, and that's how I was trained. That was my background in the Marine Corps. So I held a very high clearance. Um, and I, w I really wanted to know things that not everybody else could know. Sure. So I have no regrets. There were some things that I had to do in order to get that. And there were decisions I had to make early. And they involved pretty, in hindsight, pretty sophisticated decisions like telling the truth what do you when mean by that? Like tell the truth. So when I was applying for my ROTC scholarship, there is a form in that scholarship package, which you had to fill out my junior and senior year, which asked about drug use. Oh, so you so, mean completely truth, even the yeah. minutia things, right? <laughs> so, I didn't inhale, I swear. Right? <laughs> That's right. So I knew that I wanted to have all my opportunities open to me, all the options. So I decided that I better start telling the, telling the real story early so I don't get caught in my lies. And that, that was a pretty mature move for me when otherwise I was not doing very mature things like doing drugs with my friends who were uh, surfers in down east North Carolina where I grew up. So that was how my dad found out that I had <laughs> experimented with drugs. I was certainly not a drug doer. I was a basketball player when I was in high school. And I do find that's an important part too. I do really believe that not so much back in the day, but now I think team sports are really important for young women that develop into pretty successful leaders because I think especially in male-dominated organizations I think women bring a much better opportunity for success if they appreciate team the team dynamic the roles people play and not one-on-one -on -one competition and not trying to beat the other one down you know what I mean sure. so anyway I was a basketball player so drugs were not uh, a really good thing for me to be doing. So I was just trying to fit in. You know, I was doing the typical drinking and drugging. So anyway, that was my first lesson. Telling the truth, it'll pay off in the long run, even if it is painful when your dad says, could you come over here and talk to me about this sheet that you just signed that you say you've been experimenting with drugs? I'm like, yeah, dad, I figured that that wouldn't go over too well. 
so anyway, I got my scholarship. I just, I want to interject really quick. I have a question. Yeah, sure. So I, I've known you for many years and you're very forthcoming. You don't, you're no bullshit. <laughs> You'll tell people <laughs> the way it is. Do you think that's where it started? Were you always like that? I mean, I just kind of begs the question. Well, actually, I think I started having those realizations early on one of the other times it's not so life-changing except for it was an aha moment was when I was in college and I got and I was really I was a math major and I was in a class where I was starting starting I started out failing this class and it was required for my bachelor of science in math and it was a prerequisite for another class and what I found out at the end of that class, although it didn't help me pass it, I failed it, um, was that every lots of people have questions and lots of people don't ask them. And when I started saying, I would preface everything I'd say by, this is probably a stupid question, but I don't even know what you just said. <laughs> so Could do you, you think like... <laughs> <laughs> Could you start out everything after good morning? Thank you for attending. <laughs> and dumb class. it down to the. I mean, so I mean, do you really think like the rest of your classmates felt that way, or do you oh. really think? Oh, they came up to me afterwards and said thank you. And said, yeah, and they said, "Oh my God, I'm glad you said that because I was sitting there going, I have no clue what that guy has said for the last 15 minutes," and so the unasked question is the stupid one because if you don't ask you'll never know right and so what I found out was what's going on in my head is probably the majority voice I'm not the stupid one in the room so I I gain confidence early so now to kind of help others I'm kind of self-deprecating I guess you can call it transparent but I'm just kind of I'm the unfiltered mouth because really I think there's a lot of that going on and people don't have options and don't take advantage of opportunities because they are too scared to reveal their ignorance or that they don't know or ruin their reputation. For fear of being rejected or being judged or whatever it is, right? So I find myself in that position a lot now because I think I have the confidence and the resiliency to take whatever that environment is going to give back to me when I when I display my I don't understand or I I'm sorry the entire room seems to think this but I think that my voice needs to be heard right now and I need to say this and it turns out that 10 other voices in a room of 50 come up to me afterwards and said, yeah, they weren't speaking for me either. And I'm like, oh, what a relief. But you don't know that in a minute. Sure. So that's the transparency. And it really happened when I was failing a math class. And I finally at the end said, if I'm going to fail this anyway, I'm going to look dumb. So I might as well just ask it and put it out there. And it turns out that in more ways than one, that's just pivotal moment for me but it just turns out that most everything in life now if I'm thinking it and frustrated by it I need to let it out because more than likely I'll have good company (laughs) right 
right? Right, yeah. So instead of keeping my mouth shut, and that goes into the other part when we start talking about women in leadership, having a voice, Mm. I'm really glad that I started learning as a math major. And I was one of the minorities, but I didn't realize it at the time. You know, the STEM thing now? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Science, technology, engineering, and math. Sure. I had no idea that that was a thing. My dad never told me girls don't take math. Never, ever, ever told me that. And so I was fat, dumb, and happy. You know, and me wanting to be a Marine, I knew I was going to be a minority then, too. Sure. But dad never made a thing about, well, you're a girl, or you shouldn't do that because you're a girl in math, or I just hated reading. (laughs) So out of survival, and in my family, college wasn't an option. It was where are you going, not are you going. So college was always going to happen. So I was just trying to figure out the path of least resistance for me. And so math happened to be it. But nobody ever told me that STEM was going to be a thing. Sure. You went on to the Naval Postgraduate School and you got your master's in, I can't remember, computer computer science. science, That's right. And you have your PhD. That's why you and I met. Because I had to go back and do my payback tour at Camp Pendleton, where you oh, were working. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, it was my payback tour. Okay, great. And then, you know, you, in 2016, you got your PhD in uh, leadership studies. But you tried to get into the Naval Academy, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and, I'm not, and I'm not trying to, no. you know, bring up a negative thing. It's just that's reality, but you still succeeded. So that's my point. No, it's a perfect. I use that a lot. As one of my examples of you miss 100% of the shots you never take and having no regrets. I told you early on when I was 10, I wanted to be just like my dad. Sure. Well, what comes along with that is my dad was a Naval Academy graduate. And I knew that it would make him so proud. And at the time, I think you probably wish that I would go in the Navy. And I didn't tell you what my what my retort was to him, but I will get to that here in a minute. Okay. But in order to get to the Naval Academy, I had to take the SAT seven times. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. You didn't know that? Seven times. I took it my junior and senior year every time it was offered. Mom and Dad sent me to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina after basketball practice. I, I commuted from home to my high school uh, 24 miles. Then I had to come back home and then go the exact opposite direction, another 27 miles to go to the SAT prep class that Duke sponsored at Camp Lejeune. And then I would come home at night. So for six weeks, they sent me, paid big bucks for an SAT prep class, only improved my score 80 points. I went from 1,020 to uh, an 1,100. And the Naval Academy has this blue gold officer in every community. He's a, he's a retired or a former um, Naval Academy graduate, and they are there to help recruit. And he finally came over, and it should have been a slam dunk. If I could have gotten the SAT score and I had the grades in high school, I would have been a slam dunk for an appointment to the Naval Academy. And the blue gold officer just came back and said, Marianne, your grades aren't cutting it. So it was horrific. But I am glad I tried. I'm glad I did it. And actually, I would have never have made it at the Naval, at, at, at the Naval Academy. 
I'm glad I went to a civilian institution and went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill on an ROTC scholarship, even though I was on a drug waiver. <laughs> that's <laughs> hilarious just knowing you, but... Um... I have nothing to hide. See, that's the thing. It's not what you've done. They just don't want you to have anything that's blackmailable. So if you're open kimono and if you're, you know, put it all out there and you're trans, They can't hold anything over you, right? <laughs> right. Not even my friends. <laughs> During an interview. <laughs> sure. And it, it, and it goes with the just you never wonder. You'll never, never. You'll never wonder what if. You tried. Right. It didn't happen. You tried your damnedest you know right. I mean you showed that and it just wasn't for you it wasn't meant to be I was and tenacious and I will have no regrets about that sure I we'll have lots of laughs there's lots of laughs about that no regrets sure I want to just ask you a question you said if you had graduated from the Naval Academy your dad would have been so proud and, and I'm I'm 100% sure your dad was proud of you anyways but did you feel a pressure to make him proud did you make did you feel pressure to live any kind of lifestyle or anything No as a matter of fact he never pushed my sister and never pushed my brothers so I'm not sure he really expected a legacy in the Marine Corps but my mom used to take me to all the events at Paris Island. So it was just the culture of the Marine Corps. And the funny story that I tell is the culture of the Marine Corps is so important. And one of the first things I ever remember about the Marine Corps and the impact it had on me was the Marine Corps birthday. Yep. Huge traditional every- <laughs> ceremony, by the way. Huge Yeah, and I had no clue about the traditional ceremony, which I still celebrate to this day. Whenever me or more are gathered, there will be a birthday cake. There will be a sword or a knife that looks like a sword, and we will cut it, and we will eat it, and there will be a drink, and we will... And there will be the oldest person in the room and the youngest person in the (laughs) room. Even if they're one and the same. (laughs) (laughs) But... I remember that every year, I I really couldn't put a date to it, once a year, every year, mom and dad used to go out, I used to get a babysitter, and they used to bring me home a piece of birthday cake, and I would eat it for breakfast the next day. Mom would make sure it was a corner piece, and if she couldn't get a corner piece, she would make sure she scraped every rose that was left off of the cake and put it on my plate. So I had it for breakfast. So I always blame birthday cake for me joining the Marine Corps because I asked dad, I do remember asking dad, how do I get to continue this? Cause you're retired now. You probably aren't going to bring me any birthday cake every year. <laughs> and he said, join the Marine Corps. And I said, okay, I think I will. So, so you join the, Mar- so you join the Marine Corps for birthday cake. Birthday cake. <laughs> That's how powerful cultures can be. Organizational cultures, what I studied in my PhD, really important. They are, they are what make or break people. If you like the culture of the organization or the institution you belong to, uh, you will do everything in compliance to make sure that you do not undermine that. Sure. And that's certainly where I was. Sure. I just want to point out to our listeners that – when she keeps, when Marianne keeps saying, you know, what I talk about is she does professional speaking engagements. She travels around the country speaking for different organizations and talking about her thesis. And we'll get to the 
10 women generals that she studied for her PhD. She'll, I'm sure she'll get to all that. And um, I just wanted to let the listeners know that she does speaking engagements for a living now. So that's, she talks about this and she's passionate about it. So, so, and I, I, and I want to, um, not now, but before we finish this conversation, I definitely want to talk to you. I want you to talk about your thoughts on women in combat, but it doesn't have to be right now, but (laughs) I I do not want to leave this conversation without talking about that. That can be a long one. Yeah. (laughs) So. I have an opinion. Yeah, you do. And it's an opposing one. So I, that's <laughs> exactly. why I want to talk about it for sure. Thanks. So now, you asked about my dad. No, he was very proud of me. He uh, commissioned me. My mom was proud of me. They, the last time we did an official function was, I think it was 1997 or 98. I went back to Camp Lejeune so that my mom and dad could be a part of my promotion to major. Dad and... I profess, and I put this out there in the airwaves, I say it every time I get a chance to speak to somebody who may be in the headquarters Marine Corps circle, I profess to be at least one of the senior father-daughter combinations in the Marine Corps. The Marines have a lot of father-son combinations that have achieved the rank of general. I don't know. Somebody has said that they know of one other, Colonel Nancy Anderson. I have not confirmed that with her, but I do know that I have the senior father-daughter combination. I studied the women generals and none of them had a father that was a uh, higher than lieutenant colonel. Wow. So, anyway, so my little unique claim to fame. Right. No, that's great. What have you learned over the years about life? I know, like I said, we talked offline about just having no regrets and decisions. You know, we talked about just the other night, about deciding at the last minute going to happy hour, you know, instead yep. of going, oh, my God, I have so much to do. I'm not going to go have fun. I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to go out and spend an hour and a half with my friend and, you know, I might get something out of it type thing. I mean, it could be as something as simple as that, right? Yeah. You want to, at every moment, you have an opportunity to make a decision. And there's there's a few things that that I use to help me make, because I can get overwhelmed by all the things that I want to do in a given moment. And so a couple of the things that I think about are, you can be right, or you can be happy. So Mm -hmm. I use that all the time. Is this something that I want to lay down the gauntlet and have a fight about or take a stand on? Or is this something I just need to let go? So those are in the moment when I when I sit there and go, do I, do I open my mouth now or do I not open my mouth now? Taking risks. You miss 100% of the shots you never take. So you're at a decision point. You go, would I regret not having at least tried this, done this, or had this time with this person? And if the answer is yes, if I would regret it, then I've made my decision. Yep. I just think that fear can always override a decision. And I just say, I think if we re put that in perspective and said, let's don't, let's don't err on the side of fear. Let's err on the side of regret. So I have this opportunity a lot. So I am a uh, hospice volunteer. Yes. You've been doing that for years too. (laughs) 
yeah, this particular guy keeps coming back. And he's, I'm a veteran, so I'm a hospice volunteer companion for another veteran, uh, 1944-45 Navy guy. And he just turned 92. And I've been friends with him since he was 86. He, this relationship is really growing a little bit out of fun. It, it was supposed to have been for the good of him. He keeps living. So I find, unfortunately, sometimes it gets a little irritating. He still can operate the phone, so I get too many phone calls. But I have lots of things that I could do instead of go visit him, as you could probably imagine, because he's not on his deathbed. And so there are times when I go, would I regret if I didn't go see Bob now? And later on in the week, I don't have time to go see him. And then I've gone a full week and a half without seeing him. Yep. I'd rather not do it right now. Okay. Would I regret if I didn't? Yes, I would. So I make those kinds of decisions all the time. And that's kind of the question. Not what do I do? What should I do right now? It's what would I regret if I didn't do that today? We always regret the things we haven't done versus the things we have. So it's better to do it and not regret it, right? There was a lady yesterday. So I spoke at Utah State University at um, the Women's Leadership Initiative. It's a graduation exercise after eight-month program of this cohort of undergraduate women, college women. There was a lady there. She's a representative from Utah in one of the districts. And she said... I am so glad I came today. She was there to support one of the graduates. She said, Marianne, because I spoke about this, don't have any regrets. And she said, that was something. She said, my party is having a big convention today. And she said, I opted out to come here. And she said, and I'm really glad I did. I have no regrets. She said it was the unpopular decision But she said, I wanted to be here for this woman graduate. And she said, and the connections that I've made and the awareness that I've had and the messages that I get to take away from this are irreplicatable. She said they were exactly the message I needed to hear today. And she said, so see, it even happened to me in your audience today. I'm practicing that. She said, so positive reinforcement. I'm going to continue to do that. So what else did I being honest, played a big role in the trajectory of my career. I am successful in spite of some things. Now, your last tour as a when you retired as a colonel, you were with the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing down at Miramar, and you were the CO of the Intelligence Squadron. Or Officer in charge of uh, the G2, yeah, the Intelligence the, Section. Yeah, yep. and I was at your retirement ceremony, and everybody loves you and but you have a very unique leadership style i think you treated people uh, responded to people you led in an unconventional way would you agree i would agree and it felt different than my male counterparts i would observe them they would observe me and they'd go that didn't look like marine corps leadership yeah, but every single one of your people in your office, every Marine would take a bullet for you legitimately. Yep, absolutely. They, they, no questions asked, absolutely. And what I discovered happened when I went to school. 
after I retired. And what I discovered is, so the way I would portray the way I led, which was not uh, dictatorial, it was not top down, it was very collaborative, which you would expect if you do study traits, gender-based traits of leadership. I am a very collaborative leader. So I'm very empathetic. I am, I tend to be emotional. Yes. I tend to yes, be very supportive. And I thought I led like a mom. And there were no other women at my rank. I was the highest ranking on the base. And so I had nobody really to compare my stories to. But I would say, even though I have never, I am single and have never born children, I would say that I had a taste of what it would feel like if my biology had produced children, how I would lead my kids. And what I found out in school, when you study leadership styles, you study leadership, make a science project out of it, they actually have a name for the style that I that I exercise, and it's called servant leadership. It's actually a big thing, talked about a lot. Ken Blanchard is one of those guys. There's actually a servant leadership institute here in Carlsbad for the country. Uh, Daytron is a company that works very closely with Ken Blanchard. They're actually a government contractor that embodies the use of servant leadership. And really what it does is the leader does everything they can to support the people at the very bottom of the organization to get things done. So, you know, in my, in my day-to-day activity, the way I said it and the way I embodied it was we all, no matter how hierarchical your organization is, we all need to be responsible for our part. But if I'm the leader, I need to make sure that I alleviate, that my, that my lowest level operators, my lowest level employees are able to do their job. So if I need to alleviate them from going to meetings, if I'm having too many meetings, if they need training, if they, my job is to get them what they need in order to be the best human at that particular job in any given time. Sure, but wouldn't you say, would you agree that by doing that, you're making your employees feel valid or valued, right? And when yes. people feel valued, they do more than expected, correct? Right, right. So servant leadership is serving others. And when they get served, they want to do the same. And leadership is all about setting the example, the golden rule. I mean, let's break it down Barney style. It really is not that difficult. Treat others as you would want to be treated. And I get we're in a hierarchy. But I'm telling you, I never once had to say, I'm the colonel. Listen to me. They'd go, hey, brother, you better listen to her. She's our colonel. <laughs> if somebody didn't know, if somebody outside of the, the family, you know, my little G2 section, if somebody started to do something stupid, these kids would come to my defense because I was the last person to point out who I was. They would make sure 
that other people knew and that they would defend till death. They would protect, you know, I was the mother lion, you know, the mother lioness, and and they knew that. And they were just as ferociously defensive to protect me as I was to protect them. Yes. So it, it, it was amazing how it happened. And I probably really servant leadership. I served them. And so the loyalty comes right back to me. Right. And you didn't do that because you read some textbook or some book on the, you know, Barnes and Noble that said, this is the best style of leadership. I'm going to follow this. This is your inherent nature to be this way with everybody. And so it just came naturally to you. Right. I just didn't know it had a name. And it's really important because that's how I ended my 24 years. That's not how I started. We're all just baby stepping this thing along. So when I was a 22-year-old second lieutenant starting out in the Marine Corps, oh my goodness, I was tripping over myself. I mean, you're still trying to figure yourself out. You're still trying to figure out what your strengths are. And it's intimidating. You're a 22-year-old in a male-dominated organization. And in my unit, very few women. So there were old men that, that had to report to me. That's just the nature of the Marine Corps. I had a master sergeant that reported to a second lieutenant. That can get a really that can get really weird. So I didn't know, you know, he was having to tell me what to do and then I was doing it. So it really is dependent on the training that you receive from your more experienced Marines, sure. which happen to be your higher enlisted. So I think it's really important that the end of the style that I developed at the end of my career was certainly not where I started. Of course. It's evolution. It's a journey and it's a journey of self-awareness and self-knowledge. So when young women want to know about how I succeeded, they're going to have to go through these steps too. I mean, they're not going to get to where I am just because I know what it looks like on the other side. There's all sorts of self-confidence and fear, stuff that they can only accomplish through going through those steps themselves. You can't alleviate that. For right. Others. Through experience. Yeah. I, I want to touch on, you said something briefly about, um, you know, you were emotional. You know, you had emotional leadership. And I think a lot of women get dinged in leadership for being too emotional, right? We're too emotional. We can't make rational decisions you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that didn't inhibit you in any way. It made you more respectable, would you think? Well, and when I say emotional, when I think of that description of me, I think of me at uh, unit events that I help plan that are usually, we call them in the military, hails and farewells. Mm -hmm. When people join or you know come to the new unit or they leave yes right mm -hmm. and there's usually awards involved i always included the families major major important thing that i did that came inherently is when i was a young person in the marine corps a young woman i always made sure i included the spouses of the men that worked for me i wanted them close I wanted them to come in. I wanted them to have first name recognition with me. 
so that they were not suspicious and that they were not uh, worried about the relationship that I had with their husbands at work. I didn't want that to be something that they wondered about, worried about, or kept my Marines from having a successful time in my unit. So I always included the families. The families more often than not had more access to me than the Marines would take advantage of. Wow. So the spouses sometimes would call me. They'd say, hey, you know, I, I heard this or I want this or and one of them actually said, I'm having problems with my husband and I got her referred to marital counseling. But anyway, long story short, when I think of emotional, I think of sad to see them go or proud, so proud. You know how parents cry when, when, they're, when they have a sense of pride about something that somebody's accomplished. I never held that back. No, and my okay. Marines knew that. I didn't hold it back very well, at, even at my retirement. So when I think of emotional, they know I am empathetic. They know that I am happy for their successes. And there's a genuine honesty that the Marines trusted. But at the same time, I would knife hand and I would raise my voice. But I was very deliberate about when those emotions came out. So they knew as quickly as I would give them a hug and tell them I love them, that if they did something stupid, we would talk it through and I would knife hand them. Knife hand means, <laughs> you know, instead of point, point my finger in their nose, right. I would knife hand them. Mm -hmm. And I would go, okay. But at some point, and we have this, at some point I'd go, how did we get here? And there would just be silence in the room. So I'd bring in my, you know, four people that this particular bad thing happened. And I'd go, how did we get here? And I'd say, at this point, I just want honesty in the room. And once you admit that you've had some ownership of this problem, what good does it do me to continue to kick the dog that's you know right you just dead. go on and find a solution right. and fix so it let's just get this out in the open now sure so that we are all holding the bag that we need to hold and so when you can do that and you know that there's not going to be any you know passive aggressive ramifications of oh gosh this is going to haunt me for the rest of the time if you can get through that and say okay lesson learned Please never do that again. And bad news doesn't get better with time. So if you can see this going this way, come in and let me know so that I am not getting blindsided like I happen to have gotten right here right now. Right. You can see how this is going to get better if you don't blindside me, correct? And they're like, oh, yes, ma'am, we can see how this would have been alleviated if we had just given you a heads up. Literally, I'd have this moment with them. Sure. I'd say, ta-da, well done. Well, now we can move right. on, <laughs> right? So there's trust that develops when they know you're transparent. And I wasn't passive aggressive. Uh, I've had plenty of that done to me. And that just doesn't resonate with me. 
I mean, I'm too honest for that. And I'm busy looking for other people's success. So I really, I'm not trying to trip them up. I'm really trying to promote every, if they're successful with the general, given a brief, then we're all successful. Sure. How did your, how did your male part, your male counterparts uh, feel about your leadership style? I would just get funny looks. I, you know, I would just, they would look at me funny or they'd go, oh, I'd never do that. I'm like, oh, I do that all the time. And you have so much success. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, you know, it got to the point where, you know, they all knew, you know, Colonel Waldrop, they all knew my uniqueness. They all knew that I was the senior ranking female. So they knew that everybody knew me. They knew that I was, uh, that I had a great network on base. So it wasn't like they thought that they could get away with anything, but my Marines would come to me and let me know things. So I was actually the most informed, (laughs) the most informed 06, which is a colonel, the most informed, and it's that level of leadership that's just one level below the general's level. Yeah. So I was probably the most informed on anything bad, any controversy going on in the command because my Marines would come to me and go, you know, ma'am, that's not the way that went down. And that's this is what the general said to Joe when we were out in the hallway. That's how that went down. I'm like, good to know. Because there's a, that, that level of trust and respect and – no fear, you, you know what I mean? And that that just says so much because typically, you know, you fear, not typically, but a lot of people fear like senior leadership and they don't want them to find out all the bad stuff. And, you know, there's always, a not always, but I find, you know, there's a lot of yes, yes men out there, mm-hmm. you know, and they just, yes, man, you know, they do it and they hide it. And that's not conducive to anybody, don't you think? Right. And to the point where, you know, there's a part of me, and I don't, I haven't really tried to break this down to get to the bottom of it, but there's a part of me that I am not a very good, I'm not by the book. So Marine Corps leadership says, you know, once you're directed to do something, I, I, three bags full, salute, you know, about face and walk away and do it. And there were some decisions that were made by a general that I used to work for. And I just couldn't put a happy face on it to my young Marines. We did what he told us to do, but my Marines knew that I wasn't happy about it either. And I used it as a learning point, as a teaching point, because in this particular scenario, they wanted a certain ranked person to brief the general and this certain rank was an officer. So a well-trained, well-polished, already, you know, tested briefer. Well, I have been in commands and my philosophy is we need to push that opportunity to get in front of the general and to get the, the level of knowledge and study the topic so that our most junior Marines train to that level so that they can get so that they are proficient enough to brief the general well i had a general that said i only want officers to brief me 
And I just shook my head and I said, you know, sir, we're going to agree to disagree on this and we'll do it. I said, but I think you've missed the point. The right, because that, that is a great opportunity for these junior Marines to get in front of that kind of level officer and have that experience. Yep. So why wouldn't you want your you know Marines to be the best that they can be? And that's a great opportunity, right? Right. And so I lost the battle on that. My Marines knew I went to bat for them. And I came back and I said, I think the generals made a terrible decision. <laughs> Marines shouldn't do that. Marine colonels should never do that to their Marines. They should never say, oh, look, RO6 disagrees with the general. It didn't mean that we weren't going to comply. It just meant that I wanted this to be a teachable moment. Sure. When you all get the opportunity to make a decision like this, this is what you've got. So you can have the already experienced briefer go in and brief, or you can give the opportunity to those that will n very rarely get an opportunity to get face-to-face -face with the general and get them trained up so that they are proficient enough to brief a very professional brief the general. You need to take this with you, put this in your bag of tricks, and when you get an opportunity to decide who's going to brief, you know, the 06. Is it the gunny or is it the corporal? Let's go with the corporal. Right. Because it's going to be more work for the gunny to get the corporal ready than it probably would for the gunny to get himself ready to go talk to the sure to the colonel. Sure. So you're asking for more work, but there's more bang for the buck if you empower your youngest in the chain of command. Wow. Yeah. So anyway... I wasn't a really good leader because I come back and I'm that transparent. I don't think the Marine Corps leadership book says, tell your youngest Marines that you disagree with your chain of command. Right. Yeah. That's not one of those leadership traits that the Marine Corps. So, but I do that. I did that. Right. But I mean, if you study leadership or any, any kind of experience in life, they always say, think outside the box and go against the grain to, you know, leave your comfort, you know, what is the, um, everything that you want is outside your comfort zone. I mean, just everything is going against the grain. You get more bang for your buck just in life by not doing what you should do. It's about life shouldn't be about what you should do by what society says, your family, your friends, your, your institution, your institution, <laughs> your organizations, your work, obviously you know, nothing illegal. I'm not saying anything like that, but just. Right. Well, and, and that's the perfect point. In the Marine Corps, illegal could be an issue and death could be an sure, issue. Absolutely. So of course I weighed that. I mean, we're in garrison. We're in office buildings in Southern California. We're not in the battlefield of Afghanistan when I'm making this kind of decision. And all that comes into my decision-making. If the general was uncomfortable with my corporal's briefing him because he was making life or death decisions with his... On the front lines in Afghanistan. Yeah, maneuver units. Of I course, guess. yeah. <laughs> Probably wouldn't even be talking about it right now. Sure. But we were back here and it was only for drill. This is a drill, drill, drill. This is only a drill. This is not real life. I took all that in consideration and said, 
this would be the perfect time to have a corporal come brief you and not a captain. Right. And you, you have served in Operation Desert Storm. You've been to Afghanistan. I don't remember. Did you go to Iraq? Not, not, not Afghanistan. Iraq twice. twice. Iraq twice. And, and Africa. And Africa. actually was in combat zone. Yeah. So you yep. have a long career and a lot of experience and a lot of different scenarios that not a lot of people, let alone a lot of women, have. And so you've learned a lot. You know, I definitely want to get to the women in combat, but I also want to hear your, you've kind of touched on a little bit, your philosophy of life, just in general. You know, how has your life changed over the years based on the decisions you've made? You know, have you felt pressure because you kind of go against the grain? You're not like everybody else. So I didn't have a grand scheme. Never thought I was going to retire from the Marine Corps. I don't even, I am very uncomfortable with five-year plans. I, I call myself not very strategic. So it was refreshing when I studied my women generals because the philosophy about women being successful in leadership positions, there is a line of thinking that says you have to have a strategic goal. You have to have a long-term strategy to succeed. Did you find that with your no. 10 women generals? None of them? <laughs> did they, Did I mean, they They were obviously like, I think all of them are retired, or most of them are retired at this point when you studied them, right? Not many were active duty? Two of them were active duty. Okay, two so. Of the eight, two of the eight that I actually got to interview were active duty. So six had retired, one uh, declined to participate, and one um, had deceased in 2013. So these are older women. I mean, the point is, is that they were, they succeeded in years where women shouldn't have gotten to that level. So I would think that they had some form of determination and motivation to do well in their jobs and things like that. But did they ever think that was my goal? I'm going to be a two star, three star, whatever, a general period, you know, was that, like you said, was that their plan? So let me get this out in the open right now. Most of those six that I studied, now there are 12, so let's get the record straight here. There are 12 women generals in the Mar that have served in the Marine Corps. Four are on some, in some capacity, three are active duty, one's reserved, but she's on active duty right now. So there are four. And just to clarify, the Marine Corps is the smallest yes. of the armed forces. So that is the percentage of that is huge. Right. Yeah. Right now we have probably 8% women serving in the Marine Corps and our core competency is combat. All the other so and to let you know the Marine Corps, we don't have our own chaplaincy, so we have no religious people. We rely on the Navy for that and we have no medical. We rely on the Navy for that. So that's how that's how we are streamlined. We are only 170, between 172 and 179,000 in total. We are the smallest of all the services, as Kathleen just said. But our core competency is combat. We don't have a lot of, there's not a lot of fat to, to have non-combat jobs. We are all in support of combat. But it's really important to know that there was some laws passed that enabled some of these women at the end of their career 
to achieve the rank of general. In 1967, the law was passed. Prior to that, women were capped at 2% capacity in the entire military force. So all of the Department of Defense should not exceed 2%. And uh, the highest rank you could achieve as a woman, there was one Colonel 06 spot or in the Navy captain for one woman until 1967. That was a temporary position. She was appointed as the senior woman of her service. And when she retired, she reverted back to lieutenant colonel. So 1967 was a critical time. So probably four or five of my women joined the Marine Corps before the law was changed to allow them to even consider making the rank of general. So there were restrictions that kept them from thinking that way. But even so, these women didn't join the Marine Corps thinking that they were going to stay. So Most of them joined for money to go to boot camp. They went to boot camp so that they could get college money for the next year of their college, or they went to officer candidate school. They got paid for that. They didn't have to make a commitment, and so they actually went for a summer job to get money for college. So a lot of these women didn't have this grandiose, you know, very um, idea of serving their country. They actually did those military things because they had seen it on campus and it was an opportunity to get money for school. Right. Their, their plan was just to go to college, basically. Right. right. That's as far as they could see. They did one tour at a time. Now, that the uniqueness about the military is that we transfer or rotate every three years. New job, new place, new opportunities. So we live for three months at a time. So what you'll find is we have very short-term career goals. Three years at a time, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I had no idea how long I was going to stay. I actually resigned my commission at 12 and a half years, which is a huge regret for me because my decision was because there was one person that I really wanted to respect because he was a colonel and I had lost respect for his leadership ability. And so I said, if that gets promoted to 06 to Colonel, then I don't want to be in that group. That's not who I want to emulate. They, that's not what I am aspiring to be. So I'm just going to cut my losses and I'm going to resign my commission for 12 and a half years. That was a huge, huge milestone in the way my journey progressed. That was very short-sighted on my, my point, uh, from my perspective. The lesson there learned is just take a deep breath, wait six months, something will change, and don't base your life trajectory on... One person. One person. <laughs> <laughs> one There's leader out of, you know, exactly. <laughs> 12 and a half years. Yes. And the years that will come, you would have rotated out in a couple years yep. and had a new leader and they could have been any, the total opposite I, of this person. Yes. As a matter of fact, if I hadn't decided to resign, I would have already been gone and away from that pain of watching this person uh, wallow in his lack of sickness. <laughs> right. So I would have been alleviated if I had just progressed as I had, as the Marine Corps would have had me. If I had just moved on, I would have had no ass pain. 
Right, but, but still, I, <laughs> I got a full four years of it. <laughs> right. Careful so, with you. Right, exactly. So you you mentioned there's, you know, 8% of women in the Marine Corps now. And just a couple years ago, they passed was yes. it a law. Is it considered yep. a law that yep. they allow women in combat? In and combat I, jobs. In combat jobs. And I think you are probably the only one. Who opposes that being as supportive of women in leadership roles. You're very supportive of that and very passionate about it, but you do not believe that they should be in combat, which I think is so opposite. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Why is that? So when I came in the Marine Corps, 4%, now there's 8%. So it's doubled in my, I came in in 87, technically ROTC in 1983. So a long time. The issue is, there is a huge push, and actually, Kathleen, my voice and voices of women that are my same kind of demographic, my same, relatively my same year group, retired from the Marine Corps, did full careers. So I have a group of voices that sound just like mine. We are not the ones that are getting any kind of microphone, you know, and, and national publicity. So I think my voice is bigger than what you might expect. But so in, in 2016, the law was lifted by Obama and uh, whoever the Department of Defense guy was at the time. His name used to roll off my tongue. Now it doesn't. Um, passed the law that said women can integrate into the last four prohibited jobs. So that's infantry tanks, artillery, and an amphibious vehicle of some sort. All those little vehicles with either tracks or wheels tend to look the same to me. So anyway, women who can qualify to join those organizations can now. One, one of the huge arguments from the Service Women's Advocacy Network, uh, which is a small group, it's a activist group in Washington, D.C., said that in order for women in the Marine Corps in particular to be competitive and for higher numbers to be uh, qualified to make the rank of general, that they perceived that they needed to be in those combat Marine occupational specialties or MOSs. So they fought for my right as a career Marine to go into one of those jobs. Well, I... And none of my friends, admin, logistics, my self-intelligence, felt like our careers were inhibited by the fact that we were not able, when we came in or during our service, to be a member of any of those four MOSs. We all felt like the Marine Corps needed us. Diversity is important, no question. The Marine Corps benefits by having women in its core, no question. We lead differently, we have different perspectives, we have different thinking patterns, we have different, sometimes different biological interests in perpetuating life instead of killing it. So I think that at the boardroom, putting women at the table in whatever capacity we come in is important. I don't think diversity behind a trigger, meaning the M16 of an infantryman 
or the artillery uh, lanyard to pull the, you know, the 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 artillery round out of the out of the gun is where we actually need women. Well, and I want to point out that you women have the opportunity to do their combat tours, right? I mean, you did three tours. You did three tours in combat. So they have that opportunity regardless of the law, right? right? So they don't, like you said, they don't need to pull the trigger. They don't need to shoot the bomb or whatever. They have their, you know, opportunity and as you did. Yes, exactly. So I think there's an issue, and I'm going to probably be a little not very eloquent about this, but there's an issue about equality versus equity. And and these women who fought for the law change for 2016 for women to be in all jobs were fighting for women to be equal in the military. The Marine Corps is a combat-killing machine. That is our job, is to defend the Constitution of the United States and the law and the direction that we have been given by our Commander-in-Chief. We know as Marines that that could be deadly. If the argument that I often hear, well, what's the harm? If one, if one qualifies, let her. Okay, so I think there's some things that are socializable and some things that are not. Well, and there's also, and I'm sure you'll speak to this, of why is a woman's life more important than a man's, right? Right. Yeah, there is that. But you do not want to compromise mission effectiveness when death is the consequence. So you're going to put one woman in a, because she can, so when she is either an enlisted or a young officer, let's say between the ages of 18 and 24, 25, she's at the prime. I was at a prime. You asked me to do pull-ups, I could do pull-ups. Oh, yeah, you're amazing. I yes. could do 15 dead hang pull-ups, you know, up until I was probably about 30, you know, and I wasn't a fast runner, but I was a pretty good runner. But I'm 5'8", uh, at the time probably 145, 150 pounds, but men my age were typically bigger than that. I I don't know if I could have actually buddy dragged a man during very strenuous, bad situations, but that did, never came up because it wasn't something I needed to qualify for. But the issue is if you've got one person, because I would say that in order to do those four last jobs that these women that women now have been given the opportunity to qualify for. One, not many women want to, and two, not many women can physically qualify to do the job. Because they've done studies, right? Right. Well, yeah, studies. Yeah, the Marine Corps did a big study, which led to their request, because at the end, they were given a two-year implementation time. So from 2014 to 2000 and the end of 2015, all the services were given an implementation time and said, if you want to request a waiver to policy, because we're going we're gonna to make the policy that all jobs are open to women, unless the services can produce evidence that says that they still want to request a waiver of women 
so that women will not be allowed to participate in those jobs. The Marine Corps did an experiment, very well-founded, very academic, lots of non-Marines involved in it, University of Pittsburgh being one of the academic institutions, and they produced results that said to the Commandant, it is not in our interest to integrate women in those last four MOSs that are currently closed. Marine Corps went in for a waiver request and they were denied. So mm. they, there were studies, there were experiments done to verify that integrated teams were less effective and less lethal than all male teams. And I can understand that. The argument is that more women will become candidates and qualified for some of those jobs because we can work to it. We can tell them to do more pull-ups. We can train to the new standard. I am no biologist, but I believe my suspicion is that women will try and women will increase their training, but we will break and have traumatic injury at a higher rate. And so what we will end up doing and the metrics, we don't have enough time yet to determine how this is going to end up, but they should be keeping the metrics and evaluating how many people, how many women try, what their injuries are, what their success rate is, because what I suspect is this is going to, the second and third order effects of allowing women to try to do these combat jobs is going to backfire. Women are not going to stay in as long and they will injure faster and maybe more traumatically than they would have if they had pursued one of the more traditional jobs that were afforded people like me back in the day. And it's, it's a simple matter of physiology of the women's yes. body, right? I mean, it right. comes down to, you know, muscle mass, That's weight, right. <laughs> uh, step stride, you know, we're shorter, yes. we have, you know what I mean? And so it's not a well, matter of we can't do it. We can't, no. we can't do it. It's just for how long? Yeah, right. I mean, for a lifetime, we're not gonna. So the argument is, is that the longer you, if you're in those jobs, those women, because they are the core competency of the Marine Corps, will get promoted and be viable candidates for Commandant of the Marine Corps. My argument is that lifestyle that they are going to endure. They won't make it that far. They won't make it that far. <laughs> Physically, they won't make it that far. They're going to probably opt out earlier than people like me who were intel officers. And what a tragedy, because some of these women that are wanting to do this early are not going to be a resource for the Marine Corps because they're going to have to leave. And ironically enough, the women that are fighting for my right, that fought for my right in 2016 to do this, they are reservists. They left early. They left early. They're fighting for my right to do this as a career, really. So, or there are pilots. Pilots are a whole nother thing. They're standoff range. They're not going to be hand-to-hand -hand combat. They're not going to be any of that. So pilots are definitely combatants. I get that, but that's not what I'm talking about. But those women that were fighting for my right to go be 
an infantry on the ground in the front lines. Yeah. Yeah. So I could see the whites of the enemy's eyes are fighting for my right to do that. Hmm. I don't get that. Right. And I, the Marine Corps needed me. There were plenty of not so smart men that could have been (laughs) intel officers. And I am damn glad I was in those boots that got to go do those jobs because Marine Corps needed me. I was a force multiplier. No doubt about it. They didn't create the intel job to put a woman in it. I there was something that I could do. The physical fitness was was uh, reasonable and did challenge me, and it made me a better person. It made me a better leader, because actually one of the things, one of the side effects is, when I joined the Marine Corps, I met the minimum standard of the men. Your audience may not know this, but regardless of what you've been hearing. In every service, the entrance level physical fitness requirements are different for men and women, universally. I thought when they passed the law for the Marine Corps to lift those jobs that it became women had to meet the men's standards, no? In those jobs, in those infantry jobs. Oh, so only those four jobs. In these four jobs. Oh, okay. Okay. In those four jobs. Otherwise, when you come in the Marine Corps, if they're looking, you know, if they're looking to qualify you for boot camp or officer candidate school, the run times are, are, are longer for women. The pull-up is much, much abbreviated, less, yeah. much less. If, and I'm kind of off the dime on if they're actually requiring pull-ups for women right now. Might be uh, just the dead hang. Right. Yeah. But so they're very different. But I made it a point, and actually my Marine officer instructor, that's a longer story, my, one of the very Im- big influencers in my life, made it so that he wanted me to do a first class on the male physical fitness test. And what that did for me when I became an officer is that my Marines respected me because I didn't just do the women's physical fitness test. I did the women's physical fitness test for score. And then I went and competed with my male counterpart, male, your male Marines. Yeah. And I also did it. So it also kept them on their toes because the last thing they wanted to happen was a woman beat them on the run. (laughs) Right. So there were plenty of times when I was the impetus for better PFT scores <laughs> because they didn't, you know, cold day in hell, they were going <laughs> to get. And I, and I was no slouch. No, so I you're was not. Actually, I was actually a, uh, a milestone for them to try to achieve too. So anyway. Well, that's amazing. So, well, yeah. I, I want to, I just love our conversation and I know that we could probably talk another couple hours, but I just want to wrap this up with what is your definition of no regrets? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm better at giving examples than I am regrets. Uh, Definition. Well, Uh, I mean, your definition could be an example, like just, you know, whatever works for you. I'm not. So because you'll give a real life life example, you know, life needs to be lived to its fullest. And that means honoring and including and respecting people in your life. So rejoice and celebrate with them while they're alive, not when they're dead. So one of the things that I find myself doing more often than not is attending events, being with people, no matter how hard it is to get there, 
or no matter what I have to cancel to do it so that I celebrate with them when they're warm, not when they're cold. And you're very active. You're very social. You play golf. You are a volunteer in many organizations. You're just uh, last year you did the women's celebrating the 100th. Anniversary, anniversary of the women of Camp Pendleton. You put yep. on that. You wrote a magazine for Christ's sake, or you edited whatever yeah. magazine. Stories. I mean, yeah, stories. Um, you're very involved in not only the Marine Corps, but your community. And you have great relationships, friendships. And yeah, I mean, I know this firsthand. We get together as often as we can, but we have our little group of sisters, and it, it, it's, we have some great memories. And we're all getting older now and um, it is important to really value. And like you said, honor that when we're alive and not celebrate when they're dead. Right. Right. And we've got a, uh, we've got one that we're contending with now. I think, I think so too, that we need to make sure that we make time for them while they're still alive. Yeah. Yep. So those are the kinds of having no, no regrets. Those that's where I am in life right now. I want to be with and make sure people know before it's too late what they meant to me. Not everybody has to be at the top of the pyramid, but what they meant to me. Sure. Genuinely, I want to communicate with that that with them and show them by showing up. Being there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally just showing up and right. being there. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, I agree. So do you have any um, closing thoughts before we wrap up? I mean, I just I just love our conversation today. So I appreciate your time. No, thanks. No, I um. let me just end with what I'm grateful for. Oh, I'm grateful that's, that's... for my career ended up such that I could I got recalled after 9-11. And I continued to serve even though I resigned my commission prematurely in 1999. I retired because of the conditions of my service, I retired with an active duty retirement. Which and is so huge. That, right. So what that allows me to do, so active duty retirement, no children, no husband, invested well because my dad taught me that. I have the luxury of not having a four paid job, but I actually am out volunteering, as Kathleen said, in four or five different organizations, dogs, veterans, old people. You did cats for a while. Yep, yep. I do service dogs now. I do hospice. I do underserved communities, reading. And I am grateful for my retirement so that I can go out and have those kinds of connections and make those sorts of impacts in the community. Yes. So I'm grateful for that. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you, Marine Corps. Thank you, taxpayers. But you're getting your money's worth. <laughs> yes, you, yes, yes we are. With charities. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Marianne. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks. Thanks, Kathleen. And sometimes I saw some, maybe you didn't know some of that stuff. So maybe offline we'll talk about the stuff that maybe you didn't already know. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Thanks. It was my pleasure.